We're going to be in Revelation 20, 7 through 15 this morning. So last week, you may, if you were here last week, we got into probably the most controversial section of Revelation, but I feel like I've said that a lot throughout this series. Um, talking about the various views on the millennium, and I didn't really get into the weeds on defending and explaining each of those three perspectives. That was on purpose. Um, I wasn't avoiding the issue. It was just more that I don't think everyone's interested, and it t that kind of stuff tends to take us a little off track. I don't want this series, to this preaching series, to become like a seminary class. Um, I think it would be boring, and it kind of misses the point, because you, the goal of preaching is transformation, not just information. And it's I can't preach something I don't believe in. Okay, so I'm just preaching from my perspective, and so I wanted to kind of at the kind of point you to that. And if you have not been, if you're just now joining us in the middle of, or really at the end of this series on Revelation, you can find the rest of these messages on our website at livinghopetriad.com on the sermons page, and they're all there. We're actually week 23. And this is where we begin to take this series in for a landing. And so if you feel a little bit lost, I don't think you'll feel that lost this morning, but you can go back and you can listen to those, and I would encourage you to do that. I mean, what else are you doing right now, right? Um, so that's available to you anytime. So um, the final sequence of or, or flow of things here at the end of this book, we're not doing all of this today. I'm just kind of giving you an idea of kind of where we're going to go through the end, is... You have the final defeat and judgment of Satan, which we're talking about this morning. The final judgment of humanity after that, which we're also talking about this morning. And then the cosmos renewed, which is the heavens and the earth are renewed. And then the church is revealed. We call that the new Jerusalem. And then there's an epilogue. Okay, so that's just the last stuff that we're going to be dealing with in Revelation. And then we'll be done, which is exciting. It's amazing. Um, and Susan Spencer has posted a link to the notes in the comments. You can scroll up and see that. She also emailed it out. So if you'd like my notes, if you're a notes type of person, or you'd like to follow the notes, that's right there. And you can click on it and look at it while you're listening. All right. All right. Let's read verses 7 through 10 and discuss it. It says, and, then, and when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So if you can remember the sermon several weeks ago, this is before quarantine. I think it might have been actually the week before or maybe two weeks before the quarantine began. Um, I did a sermon on Armageddon where we talked about what that means. Um, this is essentially, this section is essentially talking about that same period of time at the end of the age, okay, um, where it shows us that we can expect 
a dramatic increase in wicked wickedness, a dramatic increase in Satan's activity in the earth at the end of the last days. Okay? So by last days, I mean the church age, the time between Jesus ascended, left after his resurrection, and the time when he comes back. We're somewhere in the middle. And I would say, you know, who knows really, but I would say we're closer to the end than the beginning for sure. Okay? Um, and so the if you imagine a time, you know, a graph of wickedness like in the earth, it slowly increases and goes up and goes up and goes up until the very end. It crescendos at the end. And that's basically what that is showing us, right? So Satan is released by God in some new way. It's mysterious, but in some way Satan is allowed to do worse than he was before. And the nations of the world unite in their rebellion against God, and then God defeats them and crushes them. Okay? That's what we can expect at the end. And I think, I think that's what we're seeing now. I think I, I, you could disagree, okay? but I think that's what we're seeing now in the world is a crescendo of rebellion against God. Okay? Um, this demonic unity against God is signified by Babylon in Revelation. Like living in Babylon is like living in the world, living in rebellion against God. And here... You have the same idea represented by these cities, Gog and Magog, okay? It isn't about a literal Babylon, nor is it about a literal city, Gog and Magog. The dispensational premillennialists, like we talked about briefly last week, they get really, really into what is Gog and Magog. When I was a kid, it was Russia, and some people thought China or Russia. It was always Russia included. Uh, Russia and maybe Cuba, Russia and North Korea. You know, there's lots of theories, and people get really into it, um, trying to discern what specific nation or city or people group or whatever are represented by Gog and Magog. I think that's a wrong approach to the Book of Revelation, but that shouldn't be news to any of you at this point if you're following along. Um, I think it's just representative of this kind of unification in the world around rebellion against God, against God, a worldview that is anti-Christ, anti-God, um, and I think that's pretty. That that to me is a much better interpretation of that idea. Okay. Um, so this section of Revelation 20, 7 through 10, describes the same event, only now we have the same event as, as Armageddon. So now we have more detail about what happens specifically to Satan and his compatriots, right? His demons, everyone who's in league with him, which is really interesting and really exciting, to be honest with you, okay? Satan, what happens to him here is he's thrown into the lake of fire. Lake of fire is a specific term Used in Revelation, you'll see it in this last section a, few, a couple of times. This is Satan's eternal destination. It's where his final resting place is, but it's not restful. Okay, The lake of fire is what most of us think of as hell. Okay, This is Satan's final judgment. Okay, This is where he stays forever. So I want you to think about for a minute, try to fire up your imagination. Okay? Think about what an awesome day this is going to be. Think about what 
all the terrible things the enemy has done just to you. Not just you, but people you love. And not just people you love, but people around the world. And not just people around the world right now, but people around the world throughout history. Just think about the nation of Israel by itself and what Satan has attempted to do to them. Just think about all of those evil, wicked things that he has done, and he is going to pay for that on this day, and it will be, we'll get to watch, we'll get to be there and cheer, okay? The great deceiver, the accuser, the enemy of our souls, the evil one, the father of lies, the one who deceived Adam and Eve, and then shamed them for their weak nakedness, the one who drew the world into sin, murder, rebellion, and idolatry, the one who has lied, shamed, accused, attacked, and harassed you and the people you love for your entire life, and the one who entered, who entered into Judas. We just read that on Easter Holy Week. The one who motivated the mockery, the torture, and the murder of the Son of God, Jesus himself. He will once and for all be thrown into hell where he will suffer for eternity, and it will be a good day. God has put in all of us a deep-set, natural desire to see the bad guy get it, right? Think about all the movies that have been made and stories written over throughout history where that was the plot. You have a bad guy and a good guy, and the bad guy does really bad things, and then the bad guy gets it in the end, and think and how satisfying that is in your soul. That's why we love those stories. It's irritating, right? On a kind of very instinctive base level when the bad guy gets away with it. It's irritating. Because you're set up, right, in the story to want the bad guy to get justice, and then if the bad guy doesn't get justice, it's very, it leaves a kind of empty hole of expectation inside. This desire will be fully awakened and fully satisfied on that day when Jesus returns and Satan and all his, his army of demons are thrown into hell. And that that taste you get of a story of and there's justice, that feeling of satisfaction you get is just a foretaste of what we will feel when Satan is finally thrown into hell. It will be a good day. I can't wait. There's going to be cheering. There's going to be worship. We're going to, we're going to be cheering God because he is faithful and true and just and righteous in that moment. There's something to look forward to in it. And look at verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death 
and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, same idea, only the people being judged are different. Now it's not Satan and his demons, now it's people. Okay, And this is people who have been, we talked about, uh, I think it was last week, about the intermediate state that we call it, which is if you die now, you go either into heaven, your body goes into the ground, right? Your spirit goes to be with God in heaven in this intermediate state until his return and you're reunified with your body. Same thing if you're not a Christian, die, same thing. Your body goes into the ground, but instead of going to be with God, you go into Hades in the same kind of spiritual intermediate state. It's a bad place apart from God where you wait to be reunified with your body. And what happens there is we are all judged before God at this great white throne. It's a white throne just symbolizing God's holiness, right? We've seen thrones talked about all throughout Revelation. And it's white here just because he's showing us this is emphasizing God's holiness, his perfect holiness. So the book of life and death are symbolic of the memory of God. Okay, how good is God's memory? <laughs> it's perfect, right? It's unfailing. I like that word better than perfect. It's clearer, I think. His unfailing memory. Everyone, great and small, it says. That just means everybody. No one's exempt. No one gets out of this um, judgment. It says they will be judged according to what they have done. According to what they have done, not what you intended, but what you actually did, you will be judged according to that. Everyone will stand before God on that day. So listen, when I was younger, and I heard this part of Revelation taught, it freaked me out so many times. And I used to really worry about this. And it's because I didn't understand the gospel very clearly. And the gospel wasn't really included in this verse. I think the thought was, I can, if, if I can teach this in the most scary way possible, then, then kids won't sin because they're scared of what's going to happen, which of course wasn't true. It didn't work. It just made us scared we sinned anyway, right? And this is how I used to think about it. But for, you need to understand that for the Christian, this is good news. The great white throne judgment is written here is intended to be good news for the people hearing it. Okay, you need to re recognize that. And you go, well, how can this be good news? Judgment sounds like a terrible thing. Judgment is terrible for those who have no advocate, right? John, 1 John 2.1 tells us that we have an advocate, right? Who, If we sin, we have an advocate before the Father who is Jesus Christ. Okay, so in this moment, in this great white throne judgment, you can't just imagine yourself being standing there alone before God, having all of your sins read out before you. You have to imagine Jesus with you, advocating for you before the Father. We stand with Christ, who receives every charge of sin on our account as his own. This is what Jesus did on the cross. Remember, you died with Christ, you were raised with Christ. You're a new creation. So as your charges are being read out by the Father who is, has an unfailing memory, who is full of holiness and justice, 
And you've just seen Satan thrown into hell, into the lake of fire forever. No, it's having just seen that, now you're standing before the Father and he's talking to you about what you've done, but you're not alone. You don't stand there by yourself. You stand there with Christ who says, that's on me, that's on me. After every charge, he says, that's on me, that's on me, paid for, paid for. It's as if he did it, though he was holy and never sinned, instead of you. He's paid for it all. And we will stand before God bearing the righteousness of Christ while Christ bears our sin. He has borne your sin, every charge against you. Truly frightening prospect in this section, standing before the Father, is the very idea of standing before the Father, the great judge, the perfect and holy with an unfailing memory, standing before him with no advocate. That's truly terrifying. Because for those with no advocate, there will be no mercy given. The mercy was allowing you to breathe and live out your days on the earth, enjoying every sunset, every beautiful day. I'm looking out the window here, and the trees, and the sun, and the clear blue sky. The mercy of God is allowing you to enjoy that and not acknowledge Him as God. But there will come a day, and this is the day. That is what's being described here. This is the moment. When it is too late, the time to get an advocate has passed. You do not want to be caught on this day standing by yourself because there will be no justification for you. There will be no excuse. There will be no reason you can give. But God, I didn't really mean it. I wasn't that bad. You can't point at the next guy in line and say, he's worse than me. You'll stand on your own. Or you'll stand with Christ, one or the other. So I don't say that with any satisfaction. Okay, really don't, because I'm no less a sinner as anyone else. Okay, this is this is the gospel. This is the this is what Christianity is. Is that whether the difference between us is not who sinned more or who sinned less. The only difference that's going to matter between us is who has Christ as his advocate and who does not. That is the only thing that separates us on that day. So the point here is that every injustice, every wicked act, every sinful deed is given perfect justice. This is the basis of forgiveness. You ever thought about this? We can forgive others because, one, we believe that nothing escapes God's justice. Okay? God sees it all. He has an unfailing memory, an unfailing eyesight to see everything. Now he misses nothing. And two, we know that we are sinners who have been forgiven much. So I can forgive someone who hurts me. One, because I know God will, all justice, perfect justice will be given at the end of the day. But also, I know that I have been forgiven a lot. And so that enables me to forgive a lot can't have it both ways. You can't have justice for everyone but you, right? What we need is not an excuse or an argument with God. What we need is an advocate. It may seem harder to imagine here, I think, than the, harder than the judgment of Satan being something worth, 
worshiping God over or being satisfying, but I think it will be. Because what we will see is that God is nothing. You look around the world, and whatever you're upset about in the world that's gone wrong, the injustice or poverty or people that have hurt you or you think or violence against other people or inequality in uh, the distribution of wealth around the world or whatever it is you're just raging about, maybe all the things that you want politicians to fix but won't fix. At the end of the day, every single injustice will be made right by God. No one will look back over history in this day and say, ah, that didn't go right. <laughs> Everything will be sorted out by God in the end, including your injustice against God. It will be deeply satisfying and it will be a joyful occasion, even the great white throne judgment, I believe. Because God has made us to love justice just like he loves it, and all things will be made right. So I want to encourage you this morning on a couple of levels. One is, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not in a great place right now. And it's not because you're more of a sinner than anybody else or less of a sinner than anybody else. It's because you don't have an advocate. And we don't know when this day is coming. Your day might come today. Because when you die, that's it. Or when Jesus comes back, that's it. And so I just want to just plead with you this morning that you would just get right with God. Just ask, submit to him. Say, you're, you're in charge now. You're in charge. You're my Lord. That's what that means. You're in charge. You're the boss of me now. My whole life, every decision, everything I do comes underneath you and your will. I'm submitted to you now for the rest of my life. And, and you just ask him. You say, God, Holy Spirit, will you come into my heart? The Holy Spirit is just the Spirit of Christ. He comes in and He starts to change you. He starts to create in you the fruit of the Spirit that we started with. Well, made the mistake with the kids verse, right? All those fruit of the Spirit will start to come out of you and He'll change you. He'll change your life. That's what He does. But for those of you who don't know Jesus, or excuse me, who do know Jesus, I want to encourage you that this is all the stuff that's not right in your life is going to be made right. I don't know when that's going to happen. God may do it now, but he certainly will do it later. And everything that you look back on in your history that seems like your worst moment, either when you were the worst or other people were the worst to you, every single one of those moments will be made right. Because you'll stand before the Father You'll see him mete out justice to everyone, including you, and you will be there with Christ, your advocate. Jesus has already received the well done from the Father at his baptism, the beginning of his ministry. And then when he died and rose again, he gave you that well done and said, now that well done, good and faithful servant, it belongs to you. He's already given it to you. So I want to encourage you that that is your future, and that's your destiny where God is taking you. So you will not say in that day, God, you did me wrong. You won't. Because you'll see everything made right, and it'll be a beautiful, wonderful moment. I can't wait.